Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with my co-host, Brother Axel Safari. We have another exciting episode. We'll be talking about James Anderson's Constitution of 1723, specifically the charges of a Freemason. Those charges that have been extracted from the ancient record of lodges beyond sea and those in England, Scotland, and Ireland. The use of lodges in London to be read at the making of a new brethren, or when the master shall order it. So the old charges... Um, Which is what these are called, right? Like, this is what's considered the old charges. Yeah, like, well, it, the old charges is a bunch of documents that kind of are before 1717 and and right up to it. Uh, so, so sometimes they're called the old charges or the charges uh, of a Freemason, but it's it's in Anderson's constitution, and they form the, the first step um, of creating sort of a scaffolding of understanding and directives and um, kind of direction and, and orders for a Freemason. And these can still be found in, in constitutions throughout the world, in, in American Grand Lodge constitutions. The United Grand Lodge of England still uses it. Um, I think some of the language has been modernized. But for the, for the most part, this still stands as sort of the original document. And what's important to, 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 to think here is that even though there's new constitutions and new rules and, and new ways of looking at masonry, this is still foundational to Freemasonry. And as such, it kind of forms kind of like the common law of Freemasonry. So when there are questions about conduct and directives and, and how things should be done, this is a document that can be entered into Masonic law as sort of foundational to what all Masonic groups do all over the world. So, and this too, this didn't spring out of nowhere either. Like, they, I, I think there's this kind of conception among our, you know, Melcraft brethren that, like, Freemasonry sprang forth fully formed in 1717 with the formation of the Premier Grand Lodge, and there was nothing like this before or, or since. And that, But to me, these, these documents that you're talking about indicate that there were traditions of Freemasonry that existed before that. And this has always seemed to me to be more of a distillation of those ideas than a creation of something completely new. Yeah, so some of the, you know, well-known older documents, because there's literally dozens and dozens of documents that kind of um, appear throughout medieval Europe, you know, um, that are used by operative guilds, by operative masons. But the, the well-known ones, I think we should just touch on real briefly, but there's the Regis or Hallowell Manuscript, which is about 1390. Again, they really don't know the exact year, but they've, they've, they've sourced it back to that point. Uh, there's the Matthew Cook manuscript, which is about 1410. And uh, these two are probably the most well-known of, of the older charges. And they're essentially the same thing. They're sort of rules for Masons. And they include a history of where Freemasonry came from. And sometimes they contradict each other. Sometimes they overlap. But essentially it's this idea that Masonry came from Adam 
you know, um, through the story of Genesis, through the patriarchs. You know, Nimrod is kind of is generally seen as the first grand master presiding over the construction of the Tower of Babel. And, um, you know, these secrets are kind of passed down through Egypt and, and Greece and Rome. And because and, and Euclid shows up, right, and starts, yeah. and starts learning and teaching all this stuff. And that's how they say it makes its way to England is that one, either him or one of his disciples ends up teaching Athelstan the Great. Yeah. And he introduces masonry and, well, they call it geometry into, into England. Yeah, sacred geometry. They bring it to England, and then that's how it gets into the operative guilds, and, and then from there it becomes speculative. You know, roughly seventeen seventeen, formation of the premier grand lodge of England, and you know, the rest is history, right? Um, I don't think we should so focus so much on the history. I think that's kind of a different study. I think I think we should look at the charges themselves because that's what rarely people read. But it's just so important because it kind of tells us how we're supposed to be as Masons. Like, there's actually moral directives. And I think they're really important because I I think they should be upheld. I think they should be propagated. And I think um, you really can't claim to be a Mason if you don't know these charges. No, what struck me reading through this um, for the podcast was that, like, because I'm the same in the sense that, like, everything that you find is about the historical aspects of these manuscripts. But there's, it's so hard to find content on what they act, what they say about how you should live your life. Because I think that's something, you know, in in our age that we kind of find distasteful is the idea that anybody would tell you how to live, mm-hmm. but. But that is what masonry is. So you read through these charges and you're struck with the idea that like this is a code of honor. Like you're supposed to, it explicitly says you're supposed to live in certain ways. And I think that's the aspect of all this that kind of gets forgotten in, in trying to find out, you know, which document is, is the oldest or most authentic. History is important, but we can't also like get caught up in the minutiae of history. Like what is the practical purpose of speculative Freemasonry? Like why does it exist? It doesn't exist for us to look back on historical records, right? Mm-hmm. It It's there for us to be better, right? To serve God, to create a better world, to, to perfect humanity. And how do you do that? Well, it begins with each of us as Freemasons living a life worthy of Freemasonry, of that title Freemason. And is not Masonry defined even in the dictionary as a peculiar system of morality? So uh, to avoid that, paradigm i think is to avoid really what it is to be a freemason well and luckily freeman the tradition of freemasonry has written all this stuff down for us it's not like we have to figure it out from scratch like that we have the old charges we have our rituals we have we have all of this stuff in writing it's not it shouldn't be a mystery like our, our rituals and our and these historical documents just come right out and say this stuff in universal co-masonry and many co-masons might actually i've never heard this before but charges of, of uh, Anderson's Constitution is part of our foundational documents. So what is written in the charges stands as being true for each co-mason. There's a few things that have been changed, like the fact that women aren't allowed. That's actually said in the old charges here of, of Anderson's Constitution. But, you know, that's something we've changed. But besides a few little things that, that have been changed, the entire body of the text may, remains true for every co-mason. Now, we've developed you know, our own declaration of principles, and we have added to the moral directives of, of these charges of, of Anderson's Constitution. But we've never, we haven't taken away any of them. So they all stand true to this very day for every co-mason. 
So why don't we jump right into it, Brother Matthias? Um, we'll read this first. This first section of the charges is my personal favorite. One is concerning God and religion. And it says, A mason is obliged by his tenure to obey the moral law. And if he rightly understands the art, he will never be a stupid atheist nor an irreligious libertine. But though in ancient times masons were charged in every country to be of the religion of that country or nation, whatever it was, yet tis now thought more expedient only to oblige them to that religion in which all men agree, leaving their particular opinions to themselves, that is to be good men and true, or men of honor and honesty, by whatever denominations or persuasions they may be distinguished, whereby masonry becomes the center of union and the means of conciliating true friendship among persons that must have remained at a perpetual distance. There's a lot to digest here. I, I think we should take this almost sentence by sentence, but it, that, that first section about how we're obliged by our tenure as Freemasons to follow the moral law. Um, I think a lot of people miss what that means, and it means something very particular. The moral law is essentially the Ten Commandments. Yeah. So the moral law is is what Mo, Moses codified. It's sort of the, the basis of morality for the Old Testament, but still still applies to the New Testament. And so it also applies to Christianity. It applies in Islam and, and of course Judaism. But the moral law is the Ten Commandments. You know, you're not you're not going to take the Lord's name in vain. Um, no murdering. No murdering. No stealing, you know, no respecting coveting. thy parents. Yep. Uh, there's some different versions of the Ten Commandments, but they're generally all the same and it's it it's it's common sense right brother mm -hmm. axel like i mean anybody that would argue that the ten commandments are somehow obsolete or ridiculous they would really have to show me some evidence of how that's true because it's just good sound advice well even the most controversial one right that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's property nor his ass nor his wife i think that's really the one that people take issue with because they're uh, I don't know, uh, angry at the ancient world for being the ancient world, but like, but it still stands that, <clears throat> you know, to covet another person's property, whether or not you agree that certain things should be property. And, and as universal co-masons, I'd say we're pretty strongly in the camp of women are not property, but it still stands that to, to covet somebody else's possessions or to covet something that one does not have or hasn't been given by God is still sound moral advice. Well, I think we need to take it within context. It, these charges were written in 1717, so we should be in the mindset of a gentleman in London, right? In 1717. In 1717. Yeah. And if they're referring to the moral law, then we have to refer back to the time of Moses and what was the typical mindset of a Jew, you know, thousands of years ago. I always think it's, it's criminal, frankly, when we try to apply our modern day ethics and understanding and cultural values mm -hmm. to people of the past. That's, I think that's just, it's just, a, just wrong. It's an obliteration of history. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very, very uh, unintelligent way to examine the ancient world. Like the, the idea that these people should have thought the way that we think is just uh, frankly absurd. Another uh, interesting point when I was, I was reading these, I went back and read, uh, I think it was the Regis manuscript. I'm not sure. So don't hold me to it. But in one of the earlier versions of this document, they actually mentioned the, um, the, the moral law as being the Noahide law that, but that before it became the 10 commandments, it was actually, it was, it was the older version, which I think is seven commandments of Noah. And the idea that, that uh, the moral law laid down by Noah is what all of these uh, masons of the ancient world were following. The Noahite law is not explicitly 
written down as seven points in the Bible, but the rabbis of old have essentially um, broken down Genesis into seven laws. And and it's, it's very similar to the Ten Commandments, but it's, I don't know if I want to say it's more severe, but, you know, it basically says um, you, you, you have to treat, you know, animals with respect, mm-hmm. life with respect, murder is wrong, uh, marriage is fundamental uh, as an institution. Um, it's a moral stance, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, to, to be married. And, and of course, you have to place God before all things. But it's it's more condensed, but more explicit version of the Ten Commandments, which makes sense if you if you take in context the um, the scenario from which it emer- or at least is purported to emerge from, like the, the catastrophe on that level that was you know visited upon man for his iniquity. Like then it makes sense that you would have a, a much stricter um, ec- uh, what is it exposition of the moral law. Well, and and like. What you just said made me think of something, Brother Axel, which is we have to be careful when we look at the ancient world and not think that they viewed everything within this paradigm of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Like we, we, we have applied good and evil to everything. Like what you're doing is good or what you're doing is evil. But in the ancient world, I don't think they had the sense of good and evil as we do today. Um, like if you had to go give a sacrifice at the temple and you get half the food and, and you know you get to go... Um, use that food to feed your family like they didn't see that as good or bad that was just it was almost like uh it was almost bureaucracy right like mm-hmm. that just that's what everyone did yeah that's it, just what it, what was yeah it wasn't even necessarily religious like the like the sense of the word religion and religious as we use it today was not even used thousands of years ago mm-hmm. like it was a lot like you know we have to go get a license to drive right we got to get a license to do everything frankly well in the ancient world you got you had to go to the temple you had to give permission of the priest or you had to give a sacrifice it was in that same bureaucratic sense that we see licenses and all that, that they did their functions thousands of years ago. The only difference is that God was just a absolute real thing that nobody questioned. And so yeah. that was, you know, the temples were, they were the, the DMVs of old, right? You know, you make a really interesting point in the sense that like, you know, we often don't think about it, but religion, I mean, is from a Latin term, religare, which means that like before Latin was around, like these people were these you know, uh, first temple Jews were practicing their religion for a thousand years before Latin was even conceived. And even that word was something that was used later to describe something that had happened a thousand years prior after the word itself had been invented and then used to be like, oh, yeah, we can apply that to this thing, this idea that we've translated from Aramaic into Greek. And now, well, that kind of fits with our term. But that's not at all what the conception of the ancient world was. Well, and in 1717, everybody was Christian. And that's the other thing when we talk about the moral law, and, and and as we get to the second part here about you know that religion which all men agree upon, this isn't a Christian sense. I mean, it, it applies outside of it when you extrapolate it out to our modern age, and it still works philosophically. But it was meant for the context of Christians, and there were different denominations: Catholics and Anglicans and Lutherans and Calvinists, and and the idea was like, well, let's not debate like the the exact procedures of mm-hmm. uh, how to baptize somebody. Yeah. The fact is we all believe in baptism. Yeah. You know, whether you have to fully immerse the baby or you sprinkle some water on their head or whatever, those are the things that we shouldn't debate and just kind of focus on what we do agree. Because Christians, obviously, they all believe in Christ, right? So yeah. we can agree on that. So the idea of speculative masonry is let's not 
pick apart the things we disagree. Let's focus on what we do agree because there's so much that we agree about. And there and there's so much meaning to be found there. I mean that that brings us nicely to the second part of the sentence, which is and if he rightly understands the art, he will never be a stupid atheist nor an irreligious libertine. And I think it's interesting that they qualify that with the idea that if you truly understand what you're doing, there's no way you could be anything else. There's no there's no way that you could spit in the face of God and, and say, I don't believe in that, because that would be beyond the scope of what your practice allows. Not not because of some kind of like top down hierarchical imposition, but because like if you really believe in this, if you really want to do this work, then there's no way to be anything else. And I think that honestly, I think that's an uncomfortable thought for a lot of people in the modern era, because we have this like knee jerk reaction that we have to believe in something. But I think it was far more clear cut in 1717, certainly far more clear cut in the ancient world that that certain paths or certain um, occupations of action or, or things that you did required beliefs in things like like they don't make like masonry doesn't make sense without a belief in some yeah, in but, but, a supreme but, power but i don't know if it's like in the ancient world it's not like you needed to believe you just did yeah like you you were born in a world where there wasn't really a lot of choice like the the amount of choices we have today is almost ridiculous in the ancient world you were born in a town that you probably died in you know you were probably told who to marry you were probably told what job you're gonna have like your whole life was sort of predestined not in a religious way but like hmm. just by matter of fact you know like this idea of all these choices we have today is such a byproduct of modernity and it's really only starting to emerge in the western world around this time like the the, the enlightenment <clears throat> is just gathering steam at this point like it really hasn't you know taken sway the, the way it has now and and i think even in 1717 people didn't have a whole lot of choice about what their life was going to be i think they um, kind of the echoes of the ancient caste systems of the world were still very much in effect in the sense that like, you know, you probably took your family's um, profession on, you, your, your social mobility was definitely limited. And certainly your beliefs were just what everybody else believed. Like whatever your nation believed, like that's what you believed. Yeah. I mean, if you're born in England, you're Anglican, right? Yeah. I mean, there might be some people who still believe in Catholicism from, from all those conflicts that occurred a century before, but, but it's still like everyone believed in God. There were very, very few people that that were atheists, probably internally and certainly externally to in you know in a public way. Most people would not admit such things. Um, but I think it's very peculiar how they phrase it. They say "stupid atheist." So I I always have a little theory about that, which I mean I I don't know exactly in what context it was written, but it's almost saying like, well, look, you don't you know atheists um, atheism is you know, atheism, you know, it's the absence of theism. Um, and so it's very easy to say that atheism could, in a, in at least in a soft way, mean that um, it's not that I don't believe in a creative principle or, you know, uh, in deity or the divine, but I, I don't believe in a theistic God, right? Mm -hmm. So when they say stupid atheist, they don't... It may just be implying like you can have different views even of Christianity. You don't have to believe in the man with the beard on the throne in heaven that's mm -hmm. passing out hell or heaven. But you can't be stupid about it. Yeah. Like you can't be you can't be like, well, nothing exists and there's no purpose. Like you can't be a nihilist. So mm -hmm. the stupid atheism is just such a it doesn't say 
you can't be an atheist. It's a stupid, stupid atheist. atheist. So it's yeah. like, well, why add stupid? In? And it's like, well, okay, so there's a way to be a smart atheist. Mm-hmm. And what would a smart atheist look like? Well, it's probably someone that still understands that maybe there's something higher than theism. Mm-hmm. Well, because like, you know, saying that I believe in a creative principle, but not the God of the Old Testament would probably be, be equivalent to atheism like in 1717 like that's a society where it's you know trying to express a nuanced conception of a supreme power probably isn't going to get you very far in terms of religious circles but to me i i i find the next part equally as interesting the irreligious libertine in the sense that you know taken in whole with this whole sentence that if we rightly understand the art you know he will never be a stupid atheist nor an irreligious libertine so it it seems that to them a proper understanding of the art of sacred geometry leads one to restrain one's life in certain ways. And I find that to be really interesting that like that your knowledge of masonry, your knowledge of geometry would induce you to live a certain way that, that something that you think would inalterably change your behavior. And now, so I agree with them in the sense that I think what the moral law and the truths that are revealed by following the moral law lead one to say, well, okay, well then that means that there are things that are off the table for me now. Like I can't just do whatever I want. And I think this is another echo of an ancient concept that we find to be uncomfortable in modern society. This idea that there, again, if you believe certain things, that means you can't do whatever you want, that you have obligations, that you have to restrain yourself from satisfying whatever the urge is that gets in the way of maintaining the moral law. I mean, I agree with you 100% on that. And, and that, I think, when we look at the words irreligious libertine, what's a libertine? A libertine is essentially a free thinker. Now, the words has sort of connotations that you're kind of, you kind of do whatever Indulgent, you want, you yeah. indulge and all that. So it depends how we're using the word. And maybe they're using it in both aspects. But, okay, a free thinker. Well, free thinkers... Today we think of free thinkers, you know, the epitome of human evolution, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't think that back then. Free thinkers were kind of considered deviants, right? Because they didn't do what everyone else did. They didn't follow the moral law. Um, so it's interesting again these two words: irreligious libertine, right? So what if you were a religious libertine? Would that be yeah. okay? Well, well it, it seems kinda, like yeah, it, it yeah. seems like it, right? What, what would that look like? So I think I mean, in that sense, I think. It, it gets close to what we have enshrined in, in universal co-masonry in the sense that the the principle that, and I believe this is in the preamble to our constitution, that that we hold that the free pursuit of truth to be the highest aim of, of man's intellectual life and that within the structure of discipline to which we have all committed, the maximum amount of freedom must be allowed to each one of our members to explore the search after truth, not to, you know, do whatever you want to indulge, to disregard the moral law and to just kind of like have a good hedonistic time. That's not the liberty that we're talking about. We're talking about a very specifically focused liberty of thought to, to, to approach a proper understanding of truth, which you do need to be free in order to do that. But again, like the qualification of, well, don't be irreligious about it means like, well, why are you doing this? And, and, and it, it, that liberty of thought creates a, a force of, or energy that can propel you forward. But if that's not focused in any way, it's, if it's just diffused in, in satisfying the senses, then you're not going to make any forward progress. So we need to be religious libertines. 
we need to be people that have a religious background, a religious scaffolding, a religious framework, but to think freely. And that might seem like a paradox, mm-hmm. I think, to a lot of people. I, but I think that's exactly what Masonry is looking for. It's like, no, no, you you follow the moral law. Like, you believe in good and evil. You're trying to be the best person you can. You pray to God. Um you serve your fellow man, but at the same time, you have to have an open mind. You have to know that there's more than what you've been taught, what the schools have taught you, what your religions taught you. And, you know, this this comes to the modern new age thing. Oh, I'm spiritual, not not religious. Not religious and yeah. I'm like I don't even know what that means. I think it's just, it's 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 literally people identify themselves now. That's like mm-hmm. if you were to take a survey of, of people in the United States and Europe and, and, and ask them, you know, uh, what religion you follow? Oh, I'm spiritual, not religious. It's a, it's a denomination now, right? But um, it's a nonsense phrase. Well, I think what it what it means is like I like to have I like to have the conception that the world is not empty matter, but I don't want to do anything about it. Well, I don't want to be obligated. I don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to <laughs> be obligated to have to change my life yeah. or or inconvenience yeah. myself in any way. Being religious doesn't mean you have to belong to a religion. Being religious means that you are looking to bind back, to go back to the source, to, to, to go to whatever heaven or resurrection or reincarnated nirvana that you're looking for. But again, I think if we reverse that first word, we need to be religious libertines. We need to be free thinkers with the boundaries of religious truth. I think that's exactly what we're being exhorted to do here. Uh, I, I Again, I think that I don't think it would be possible for them to conceive of free thought in any other context. That 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 is the work of masonry is to find religious truth. So, like how again we're being exhorted not to be stupid atheists nor irreligious libertines because that focus is the point of the. It's like what I was saying before. It's like none of this makes sense without this as your goal. If you're not trying to find what find out whatever the divine truth is in the universe, then masonry is not going to make much sense to you because that's what the whole thing is oriented towards. I mean, I frankly, I don't like lodges that are 100% atheist lodges that don't believe in anything. Like, I don't even know why you do ritual anymore. Like, what's the point? Like, the ritual is supposed to have some sort of magical quality of connecting you with the divine. Well, if you don't believe in magic, you don't believe in the divine... What's the point of the ritual? Then it just becomes sort of a silly thing that we do, right? Yeah, you're just running on fumes with, with no real kind of like reason uh, behind it. Well, I mean, we're talking about stupid atheists. I mean, isn't it kind of stupid to have little handshakes and signs and, t- you know, and words and, you know, dress up and march around lodges? I mean, it seems just absolutely like the act of a circus. Well, that's... To, to, like, it, it seems stupid to me without the context that you're talking about yeah and wasn't that kind of like the early criticisms of freemasonry is oh it's a bunch of like you know well-heeled genteel english lords prancing about in their mansions doing funny handshakes with one another but like that if that's if you only take things for their material shell and don't attempt to penetrate further into the mystery of it then yes that's exactly what it like if you only take masonry for what you can see on the surface then yes it does look ridiculous so I think there's one more important part from this paragraph um, that I think we should talk about. And it's this next line here. 
Um, in ancient times, Masons were charged in every country to be of the religion of that country or nation, whatever it was, yet tis now thought more expedient only to oblige them to that religion in which all men agree. Because I think this is something that's actually held against Masons. Um, this idea that we should just be whatever everybody else is around us and that that's kind of like hypocritical of us or something. But I think it actually gets to the point you were making earlier about the cultivate what what the cultivation of religious free thought would have looked like in 1717 and the idea that you should not, um, you know, proclaim your religious convictions wherever you go just to kind of stick to your own ideas and that, that this might have actually been a way to induce the beginnings of free thought. I mean, like, again, this is the beginning of the Enlightenment. This is the beginning of the idea of free thought and religious liberty and free expression. Like, these concepts were not widespread or popular to any degree. So I think while it may appear um, kind of paradoxically hypocritical that, that we're saying just to, to blend in with whatever is around you, um, I think it's actually something that Masonry contributed to the, to like, uh, to enlightenment thinking. Well, more so, I think the idea that you blend in is the most effective way of helping your fellow man. So, um, if I burst into a room of Muslims and start telling them that they're using the wrong words and they're using their ideas are wrong and that I'm going to tell them the right ideas and, and the right words to use, well, first of all, I'm being kind of an ass, but more so, they're certainly not going to hear anything that I'm saying. I'm not going to convince any of them by just like going into a mosque and telling them, you know, well, you, they're all you're, wrong. You're all yeah. wrong. The true God is right. Like, but if I go, if, if, if there are, you know, if there's a mosque and I go in and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'm I'm Muslim, and I believe in Allah, but you know, there's some interesting ideas of freedom we should talk about here. Well, they might actually listen to me. So blending in with your surroundings, using your surroundings language and symbolism allows you to communicate with people. And Masons are supposed to be great communicators, right? I mean, how else are we supposed to change the hearts and minds of people? Well, well, you don't. And, and, and masonry, I, th I think, in, in ways that's very similar to um, what the early Catholic Church did, masonry exhorts us to be a living example, to be living lights of, of Masonic philosophy, to live in our daily actions what, the, you know, what we profess to believe in our lodges. And I was reading recently about um, the conversion to Christianity of the, the Germanic tribes. And, you know, we often think because this is kind of like our you know, postmodern cynical worldview that um, that that was all done by fire and sword. But if you actually read like historical sources on, on how that was accomplished, many of those Germanic tribes converted because they were impressed with the examples of the monks that came to preach you know, their religion to them. They, they were impressed by the way that they lived, by the way that they organized their societies. And I think that masonry exhorts us to do the same. Well, and what the monks did is they would go to these, you know, these various areas around the world, you know, in the New World or the Germanic tribes. They would learn the language. They would live with the quote unquote natives, mm -hmm. and they would assume their a lot of their their foods and their lifestyles and whatnot, and then preach to them the word of Christ from within. Yeah. And then these people converted, you know, based on what you're saying and what I'm saying. They didn't go in saying, you know, oh, well, you're wrong and you're going to be, you know, you, you need to listen to, you got to stop using these words. You got to stop eating the stuff. That stuff happened later. And that's really a byproduct, not of the church, but a byproduct of colonialism, um, of all these empires that then they tried to impose their sort of cultural will. 
But as for a Mason, we're simple warrior monks, right? So we go in, we blend in, we use their language, and then we try to communicate higher philosophical truths. And that and that's that's why Freemasonry and 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 the tradition of the mysteries has persisted for so long is because is be precisely because of this method. It's it's because we haven't set ourselves apart as a kind of as a philosophical antagonist, but but instead by demonstrating that the truths of the moral law can be found everywhere and anywhere, then they more effectively attract people to their wisdom. And it may not be a popular point of view, but I think a, a, you know, a true Mason can blend in, in any religion and it's the same God. Mm-hmm. Just because it has different outer trappings, you know, um, because it's called a, you know, a different name should be quite irrelevant to a philosophically minded Mason who understands that these are but outer symbols for inner truth. Well, it reminds me of that, you know, axiom of the uh, Theosophical Society. There is no religion higher than truth. You should be comfortable in any in any holy building because it, it is something that is it's been set up to venerate the highest. And and that is what a Masonic temple is. It's what a, a cathedral is. It's what a synagogue is. It's what a mosque is. It's It's a place where heaven and earth meet and any mason should should treat that as a privilege to be in that space absolutely so brother axel i think we've spent like a half hour on <laughs> just, the on the first, just on the first just on two sentences of yeah, the first paragraph we're not going to get through all of these but uh look, we're gonna try to hit the key ones that i think that are that are interesting so why don't we go to number two number two is of the civil magistrates supreme and subordinate and it says a mason is a peaceable subject to the civil powers wherever he resides or works, and is never to be concerned in plots and conspiracies against the peace and welfare of the nation, nor to behave himself undutifully to inferior magistrates, for as masonry hath been always injured by war, bloodshed, and confusion, so ancient kings and princes have been much disposed to encourage the craftsmen because of their peaceableness and loyalty, whereby they practically answered the cavils of their adversaries, and promoted the honor of the fraternity who ever flourished in times of peace. So that, if a brother should be a rebel against the state, he is not to be countenanced in his rebellion, however he may be pitied as an unhappy man, and if convicted of no other crime, though the loyal brotherhood must and ought to disown his rebellion, and give no umbrage or ground of political jealousy to the government for the time being. They cannot expel him from the lodge, and his relation to it remains indefeasible. It's the first part of this is, of you know, be a good citizen, follow the laws of the land, a lot of things that we hear in, in Masonic ritual. Um, and I think it's all true. Like, we're builders of civilization, right? Like, we, you know, we can't just be rebels all the time. Because if you're rebels all the time, you're tearing down institutions. I think there is a time and place for that. I mean, again, that first part sort of contradicts a George Washington, a mm-hmm. Simone Bolivar, uh, you know, Masonic liberators that, that free their country. But I think it's essential that the institution has this, this foundational piece. It's like, look, you're a good citizen. You need to follow the law. And if you want to change something, you need to use the system um, that, that you're a part of in order to, to make constitutional changes, leg- legislative changes. Um, because otherwise, we would just be targeted as being a conspiratorial group with no other purpose of undoing the government, which is essentially every conspiracy theory that you find on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's definitely there's definitely a nuance in the idea of what a rebellion is. And, and, and I think what this section of the charges are, are kind of 
reminding Masons is, is to not be engaged in, in rebellion against government, but to understand also like what, again, this is, this comes out of like, if you rightfully understand your art and you follow the moral law, like there is a, uh, there is a spiritual reason for the manifestation of temporal power. The idea that like we are to be God, I mean, they're talking about kings and princes here. I mean, that's largely vanished from the earth at this point, but in 1717. But presidents, prime sure. ministers, it's the same thing. Well, and but there, I, I think in 1717, they had the advantage of, of a conception of worldly power that I think was a little bit less, well, a lot less secular than ours is today. And, I, and I, perhaps this will be a controversial viewpoint, but I think that was actually a good thing because I think what lies behind that is the concept that there is a moral law in the universe and that we should attempt to make that manifest in our systems of, of temporal power and how we structure that on earth. And that if that becomes, if those structures, what, what we mean when we say like things have become tyrannical or oppressive is that they're, they're out of alignment with the moral law. Like there is still hierarchy in the universe. There is still leadership, <clears throat> but if some, but if a form of leadership is functioning against the moral law, then I think it is a Mason's duty to do whatever he can to change that because the moral law in the, in the charges here comes before like the first section is not about being obedient to the civil powers. The first section is understand the moral law and live by it. The second section is be obedient and subject to the civil powers. But I think that, I think those are placed in that order for a reason. Yeah. God first country second, right? Mm -hmm. We always hear that. And I think that's, you can, you can hear it here in, in the first two points of the charges. Yeah, you know, it's I'm seeing whether I agree with you or not. I mean, in some part I do agree like that. In some ways, at least was it was easier in the past when the state and religion was blended. Mm -hmm. I do think we live in a more advantaged time where it's better to separate church and state. But I think that's a concept that's quite misunderstood by people because separation of church and state doesn't mean that the state doesn't have a religious point of view or that it doesn't have standards of morality and i think we think well if we've divorced religion from the state then that means the state is sort of neutral and has no moral stance a, perf a perfect secular arbiter yeah but that's but that's you can't have a culture that way like to have a culture you have to have certain taboos you have to have certain norms and those change over time generationally and i think that's fine that's that's evolution but the state has to have some moral advantage over them than just, you know, all they do is give licenses out and fight wars, right? Mm -hmm. Well, why do we fight wars? When do we fight wars? You know, why are we giving licenses? Why is safety important? Like, there, there has to be a moral framework around all this. Otherwise, the state's just there to collect taxes and, and I don't know, to make sure we're safe. But like, even if they're trying to make us safe, that's sort of a moral directive, why? isn't it? Yeah, yeah, like why? Why is it important for us to be safe? Like mm -hmm. we shouldn't just, you know, assume that that is an important thing. And in, in, in the ancient world, safety was not an important thing. Like nobody considered safety to be the primary reason for governance, right? No. So I, I do agree with you and I sort of disagree with you. I think, I, I think there should be a separation of church and state. But again, that shouldn't divorce the state from a moral obligation. And that is why we have a constitution, or countries should have constitutions. The constitution should outline moral stances, right? Principles, first mm -hmm. principles that we follow mm -hmm. all the time. 
And I think in this country, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of uh, assembly, association, those are moral stances. We believe that everybody's entitled to this and that our society should be shaped around that. So should we protect those? Absolutely. And so if we become a rebel, it should be only in the defense of what is right. Exactly. There's a uh, there's a great uh, quote from I believe it's uh, I believe it's Faramir in the Lord of the Rings. He says, uh, "I do not love the blade for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness. I love only what they defend." And I, I think that's kind of the idea that's being expressed um, in this in this passage of the charges is like that one should be loyal to the utmost, and, and not only for for the reasons of self-preservation but because these institutions are our best attempt at expressing immutable principles of the universe and and that we should always remember that when thinking of them that that these are not just the the offices are not the people that fill them and we, we find this concept in masonry that like the right worshipful master as an office is not whoever happens to be sitting in the east you know, in, in our order, when um, when uh, a piece of architecture is given, a, a essentially a, a lecture or, a, or an essay is read, the person giving it is not their office at the time, right? They, they, they surrender their office for the moment because the idea is from the brother that fills the office, not the office itself. And, and I think masonry kind of teaches us the separation between um, the, the institution and the people that operate it. The institution should be preserved. The people that operate it may deviate from the moral law from time to time. And that that situation is dire and would need correction. But it doesn't mean we need to throw out institutions and burn down civilization. Yeah, if, if, this is something that really irritates me about today. And I think Masonry has a lot to say about it, which is, um, you know, OK, so President Biden, you know, he's the president of the United States. I don't know how many conservative people I know. They're like, well, he's not my president. Or when Trump was president, liberals saying, well, he's not my president. Well, I mean, I don't know what reality anybody lives in, but he's technically, both of them have been presidents or are presidents of the United States of America. And they are the presidents for all Americans, whether you like them or not. Your your concept that they're not your president is like not living in reality, right? Mm-hmm. And furthermore, I find it, son of, I find it kind of grotesque that, that we kind of want the person we don't support that we don't consider to be our president to fail. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, it's kind of counterintuitive and it's counterproductive because they're still technically the president of the United States. They're your president and you want them to fail. Well, that means you fail, right? Mm-hmm. So every time the president does something that um, doesn't serve the nation well, it doesn't serve all Americans well, right? And, and this, this operates in any model in any country. Um, I, I think in the past, people used to be a little more in tune with the solidarity of of the nation's spirit. And so even if it's somebody you didn't agree with being president, you still supported them. You still prayed for them, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this first verse here is kind of moving to this point that we have to be peaceable citizens. We need to respect the hierarchy. We need to respect the officers, like you're saying, the, the president, the senators. We need to pray for them. We need to meditate for a better nation. We need to work to help them. And, and we should always be hoping they're going to do the right thing. Not wait for them to screw up because, again, then we're screwing up, right? Well, and it creates a culture of hyenas, right, that are just waiting for the next, you know, the victim to, to stumble so that we can, you know, pounce upon them. And that's not, that's not how you build anything. You know, in, in masonry, we are 
educated in a building craft, not in a, in a craft of demolition and destruction. We were taught to build the bonds of solidarity, to lay the cement that binds men together and, and in service of higher ideals. And, and if we're you know, actively working against that psychically, then how can that not bleed over into you know, what, the rest of the work that we do? It can't, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I think that leads interestingly into the second section, which is really the kind of the peculiar section, which is, okay, so if there's a brother who's a rebel, he should be pitied, mm -hmm. but you're not allowed to expel him and remove him from the lodge. And I found this like really interesting the first time I read it because it didn't make any sense. You're like, well, we have to be good citizens and somebody rebels, we should get rid of them. No, we should pity them and their rebellion, mm -hmm. but we can't kick him out of the lodge. Well, that's, that's it's... It's it's weird. So so why do you think that is? Because if it, like just thinking about it off the top of my head, I, I I kind of I think that there's a kind of honoring of that brother's moral conviction there that they would believe something so strongly, and that well I don't I don't know because I I, I think that the lodge would be kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt in that case. Say like hey you believe this it, we think you're wrong. And, you know, you've done something that we have exhorted you not to do, but you did it. Well, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt that you did it from the bottom of your heart and that you meant, you, you know, you were convicted sure. in, in, in doing it. Well, and I mean, I think that's a really good point. Like, yeah, we're like, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. But also, like, um, I, I, I think this the second part of the charge is also like the institution has to defend itself. So like it can never like be like, yeah, we're for rebellions. Mm -hmm. So if you do it, you do it. We can't condone it. We can't support you. Mm -hmm. But your association with Freemasonry is still higher and more important. You've made the point before when we've talked that, that <clears throat> Masonry is a supranational organization. That it's something that exists above governments above nations above nationalities that masonry is a truly global organization in the sense that it carries itself above politics and i think that's a very i, I think you know this section has been interpreted to mean that that kind of masonry acts as an arm of the state almost or at least of an arm of society that it's that it's something that's supposed to work towards the goals of whatever um, society it happens to find itself in but i think when considering masonry as a growth of the ancient mysteries that we actually find that it's something far more eternal than that nations rise and fall governments come and go you know almost in the blink of an eye historically and yet masonry and the traditions from which it's descended remain why is that well because they they have they survive revolution well, they've ascended higher yeah. on that pendulum they're not swayed so easily because it, it exists in a realm that's beyond those entities well, it's like if we look at the American Revolution, we look at Freemasonry's participation in the revolution, there's definitely some connection in terms of the members of the fraternity that were rebels against England. But did any lodge declare, you know, its opposition to England? Like, did Masonry as a whole take a stance? No. And there were Masons on both sides. And it's the same thing in the Civil War, mm -hmm. you know, and other conflicts. So... Masonry can't ever, ever, ever pick a side. Masons can. Masons can. But masonry can't. They can. ought to. Yeah. But the institution can't. And because it lives within a state, 
it can't move against the state because otherwise it might be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it needs to survive from generation to set generation. So it's not that it has to condone the state, but it also can't um, can't rile up the, the the anger of the state by by taking an oppositional point of view. And that's not that that's would seem in kind of more simplistic you know moral conceptions that that's an act of cowardice, but it's really like. It's not one considered from the perspective that we're outlining here because masonry believes that its work is higher than the work of governments, that, that what it does is more important than societies. And I, and I know that sounds like a kind of a radical statement, but when you consider like what masons believe, that we are you know, initiating people into an ancient tradition that liberates the soul from the bondage of matter, well, these material temporal institutions... I mean, they come and go. They're not eternal. That's not what we're focused on. They're important. Civilization is very important to keeping people alive and progressing and and creating an environment from which we can draw people to be initiated, to be liberated from the material order. You know, if if civilization is falling apart, people don't have time for things like masonry. They're they're starving. They're trying to feed their families. So it's very important that that we create cohesive social units that can bring people together. But that's not the work of masonry. We're not a government. We're not a governmental organization. We're beyond that. And I think that leads us to the next section, Brother Axel. Um, you know, three, four, and five are about like how the how masons are supposed to organize as apprentice, fellow crafts, and master masons, and sort of um, the respect they're supposed to give to the various offices. But what's really interesting with the charges is actually section six. And I think we should go straight to se- section six because it's about the behavior of Mason. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like you were just saying, like it's about who we are, how we develop as individuals and, and how we live and how we grow and how we are examples to other people. And so this behavior is going to sound – sometimes I mean it makes complete sense, but I think people get surprised. Like they're, these are direct moral you know, directives to each Mason. And I think we should go through these uh, one by one, actually, all of them, so that we can better understand, like, what are we supposed to be doing every day? Like, what kind of, like, moral obligation uh, have we taken when we bend the knee at the Masonic altar and say that we're going to follow, you know, the laws of Masonry? So why don't you read um, Section 6 of Behavior, Part 1. So Part 1 deals with uh, while a Mason is in the lodge, while constituted. And it says, you are not to hold private committees or separate conversation without leave from the master, nor to talk of anything impertinent or unseemly, nor interrupt the master or wardens or any brother speaking to the master, nor behave yourself ludicrously or jestingly while the lodge is engaged in what is serious and solemn, nor use any unbecoming language upon any pretense whatsoever, but pay due reverence to your master, wardens, and fellows, and put them to worship. If any complaint be brought, the brother found guilty shall stand the award and determination of the lodge, who are the proper and competent judges of all such controversies, unless you carry it by appeal to the Grand Lodge, and to whom they ought to be referred unless a lord's work be hindered the meanwhile, in which case a particular reference may be made. But you must never go to law about what concerneth masonry, without an absolute necessity apparent to the lodge." So there's two really interesting ideas in both of those paragraphs there. The first, uh, this whole idea of you're not to hold private conversations or uh, separate committees without leave from the master, I think is, um, well, and everything that follows that, I think is an important point because in 
in co-masonry, I've, I've never seen that. Happen. I've never seen people talking in lodge. That would, that's, um, that's kind of unf- like, I, I'm aware that it happens in other obediences, but it's something that's so outside of my personal experience that it's hard for me to imagine. Well, I think when we look at male craft masonry, brother Axel, like they're not following this one. I mean, to all the male craft mason friends I have, all they do is constantly complain about their lodge experience. And, and what, what do we hear? That people are talking, people are on their cell, they bring their cell phones in the lodge. I mean, that, to me, that's absolutely ridiculous. But they're having, they're having private, you know, communications with the person next to them. And, um, you know, the other one here is, you know, uh, don't be justly well in lodge, mm-hmm. right? You're not supposed to be uh, a clown. You're not supposed to be making jokes. You're not supposed to be laughing at people when they make mistakes in the ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, I know one of the brothers that affiliated with us told me that when he was raised to the sublime degree of Master Mason, uh, they turned it into a big joke. They were laughing uh, at the various climaxes of the third degree. And it was almost like a hazing, right? Well, that's acting justly, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're being a jester. And well, it profanes the work, doesn't it? Oh, it, it? does. Like, and, I mean, and, and that's kind of like the same point about the separate conversations too. Is like, and I think this exists in any, in any form of masonry that doesn't consider itself uh, to be working ceremonial magic. Because if you are coming, from it at, coming to it from that perspective that what we're doing is a theurgic ritual to draw down the energy of God, then <coughs> you're not going to be trying to um, diffuse those energies, right? Well, and I think that leads to the next part here, which it says, don't use any unbecoming language. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not supposed to be swearing and launch. You know, today everybody swears, it seems like. But, like, this is still a directive here. We're mm-hmm. supposed to, to use proper language in launch. The, the, the same language that is the ritual, right? Used in the ritual. Well, the fascinating part of that part is the second part of that sentence is that your, your purpose is to draw your brethren to worship. Like and, and that anything that gets in the way of that is is what is unbecoming. It's not necessarily profanity or joking, but if you're if you're drawing away from the worship of the highest, then you're not in accordance with what Masonic work is. If and and again, I think we we don't often think about worshiping unless we happen to be particularly religious. But that is that is what Masonry is doing. That is drawing the brethren to worship. It is it is drawing our attention to what is highest. And, and our reverence of that. And that practice of worship is labor. So we, we worship as we labor as Masons. And that's why we have to pay due reverence to your master wardens and fellows. You know, why you have to respect the office of the law. You don't, again, this goes back to the thing about Biden and Trump. Mm-hmm. You don't need to personally like them. You don't need to be personally friends with them. But you have to respect their office. And you have to give it its due reverence, mm-hmm. right? And... Um, I mean, I think in co-masonry, this is well-practiced. I, I have never seen anyone not being reverent. But again, the stories I hear from Mailcraft Lodges, it's, it's eye-opening, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really kind of, it, it really points to what this can become without, without that. So why don't we do uh, part two of behavior? So this is the behavior after the lodge is over and the brethren not gone. So when everybody's hanging out afterwards, I presume that to me. Yeah. So the first one was while you're in the lodge. Uh, okay. Yeah. So this is at like refreshment and things yeah. like that. So it says, you may enjoy yourself with innocent mirth, treating one another according to ability, but avoiding all excess or forcing any brother to eat or drink beyond his inclination or hindering him from going when his occasions call him 
or doing or saying anything offensive, or that may forbid an easy and free conversation, for that would blast our harmony and defeat our laudable purposes. Therefore, no private peaks or quarrels must be brought within the door of the lodge, far less any quarrels about religion or nations or state policy, we being only as masons of the Catholic religion above mentioned. We are also of all nations, tongues, kindreds, and languages, and are resolved against all politics, as what never yet conducted to the welfare of the lodge nor ever will. This charge has been always strictly enjoined and observed, but especially ever since the Reformation in Britain, or the descent and secession of these nations from the communion of Rome. So that's actually a really interesting part that they're saying that this practice has always been enforced and observed since the time of the Reformation, which points to a more antique date of, now perhaps it's not speculative masonry, but the idea that these traditions were strong for centuries before these were ever written down, I think is very interesting. Well, and, and it kind of goes back to the section one about about God that we were talking about, like, yeah, there's been a Protestant Reformation, the people with different beliefs, and, you know, while the lodge is constituted or open, or when it's at refreshment, you're not supposed to be arguing about politics, and you're not supposed to be arguing about religion. And this is where I think Malecraft Masonry gets its prohibition on discussing those two subjects. Um, I think they've taken that a little too literally, because I don't think our job is never to talk about those things. It's just there, there's a time to talk about them, and there's a time not to talk about them. And this is not one of those times. Mm -hmm. You know, this is like during a table watch. Well, and it's it specifies too any quarrels about religion or nation or state policy. It doesn't mean any discussions about religion, nation, or state policy. It means any any dis any unseemly disagreements about those yeah. things. So talk about what you want until it's gotten out of hand, and then you know it's your duty to end the conversation and not let it like grow into a fight. I think there are two other interesting things in this section. One is this concept of innocent mirth, which is, I think it's interesting that it follows along from what we just read about your behavior while in a constituted lodge, that we're not here to be, you know, hyper strict, you know, iconoclastic Puritans that believe that, you know, nobody should dance or have fun or do anything, you know, beyond that, that like, <laughs> you're, uh, you're giving me some side eyes here, but, I, but I think they're, uh, their, spe their specification of innocent mirth, I think, is important that um, there's a line from one of our hymns that, you know, we serve with mirth. This idea that the service of God should not be some drab and oppressive duty that you go through. Like, it, you're worshiping the highest. That should bring joy to your heart and laughter. Like, if it doesn't, then I don't know exactly what it is you're focused on. I mean, I think it is duty, but yeah, you're supposed to enjoy your duty, right? Of like, course. Yeah, you know, like if you have to be out in the quarries all day, you know, working on big ashlers, like, well, we can still enjoy ourselves mm -hmm. in this work. It doesn't have to be depressing. And not at the expense of our principles either. Like, that doesn't mean that we just sit around and, you know, tell rude jokes and things like that. But the idea is that what you should, your mirth should be tied up with your work, as you said. Well, and, and, and that all revolves around this really interesting phrase, the Catholic religion. So I think in today's context, you'd read that and be like, oh, it's the Roman Catholic Church. But that's not what they mean here. Catholic means universal in Latin. And so what they're, what they're saying is here is that all Masons practice a universal religion mm -hmm. that all men can agree upon. And that's why it says um, Catholic religion above mentioned. So this is not a, a, a reference to the Roman Catholic Church. This is a reference to that universal religion 
that all men practice, um, well, that all Freemasons practice, right? So all those things we agree on. What can we agree on? Well, we agree that there's a God. You know, we agree that God is great. We, we believe in the blessings of God. We believe that we should pray to God, that we should work uh, towards his plan being fulfilled. These, these are things that Masons, regardless of denomination, can agree upon. And that becomes really the heart of Masonry, this idea of universal religion. In co-Masonry, in one of the mystic charges uh, of the Symbolic Lodge, it says that Masons are builders of universal or Catholic religion. So that implies that, as co-Masons at least, we are trying to build up that universal religion. We're, we're, we are to preach the word of um, solidarity, right? We're supposed to bring people together and, and stop the, the, the sort of multiplication of division uh, and, and division of humanity. Because right now, everyone's divided amongst how many different groups, right? Mm -hmm. like, and, and every day, like, we're more and more fractured. Like, major religions are getting smaller. They're dividing the smaller groups. People are then leaving those religions. And it's becoming that literally every individual is their own religion. But that's not... That's Catholic not religion. religion. That's yeah. not universal religion, right? No, it's it's a disintegration. It's actually it's the exact opposite of the work that we've been charged with. I mean, it's the exact opposite of the purpose of religion to bind one to bind us back towards the source. If everybody disintegrates into their own kind of like personal religious splinter cell, then I, that building that back is going to uh, is going to become even more difficult. And before we move on, I, I want to make one more point here that I think is important: is that they stress the avoidance of excess that no Mason should be involved in something that pushes um, the indulgence of the senses beyond what is seemly. Because like, I think, you know, or forcing any brother to eat or drink beyond his inclination, I think they're exhorting it not to become a social club, that this is not something that is like, that is for the satisfaction of bodily urges. This is for something higher. We should, you know, take food and drink and, and be merry with one another, but not to any form of well, It's excess. not a party. You're, yeah, not, exactly. you're not supposed to get yeah. drunk. Like it's like it's that simple. You you can't get drunk, and you can't induce another person to get drunk. You have to be within due bounds. Mm -hmm. And this is another one that man, I've heard some male craft stories of. You know, after raising, they're all just getting <laughs> drunk. Or man, when you hear stuff about the Shriners and all that, like, yeah, th this is not being followed. But it also it makes us look bad. It it's not helping us become better people. And, you know, it kind of resembles adolescent behavior. You know, it's like we're a bunch of frat boys, mm -hmm. you know, and that's not what we are. No, not in the slightest. So this next section here is, is governing behavior when brethren meet without strangers, but not in a lodge formed. So just to clarify that, it's when brethren meet together, but you're not in a lodge. But there's nobody that's not a mason yeah. present. And it says... So, so like us. Yeah. Like, you know, we're hanging out. You know, at your house after work, it's just the two of us. Yeah, exactly. So it says, you are to salute one another in a courteous manner, as you will be instructed, calling each other brother, freely giving mutual instruction as shall be thought expedient, without being overseen or overheard, and without encroaching upon each other or derogating from that respect which is due to any brother, were he not Mason. For though all Masons are as brethren upon the same level, yet Masonry takes no honor from a man that he had before. Nay, rather, it adds to his honor, especially if he has deserved well of the brotherhood who must give honor to whom it is due and avoid ill manners. So this is another idea that I've heard you talk about before, that honor is something that cannot be taken away. 
in, in certain contexts. Like you've made that argument before that if somebody, that somebody's positions in life or the duties that they have, or even just, um, you know, becoming a father, for example, or, or reaching a certain age or position carries with it an honor that cannot be taken away, that must be respected. Well, it can't be taken away, but if, you know, if I'm the master of a lodge, then I have, I have obtained that honor and then I have to maintain that honor. Right. So, um, I don't, you may earn that honor getting into the position, but once you, once you're in the position, you possess that honor. Mm -hmm. You're not constantly having to prove it other than you have to maintain it. Right. And I think what you just read is sort of referring to that, that like we have to maintain that honor with one another in our relations even when we're outside a lot. So what do we do? We, we, we have to, and this is a pet peeve of mine. You greet people. Hey brother, how are you doing? Yeah. Man, today you walk in a room and everyone just stares at you. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, learn say to say good hello, yeah. good morning, good evening. Like this is important. And it's, it's like, it's literally said in the charges here that you need to greet your brothers as brothers, mm -hmm. right? Like you, if you don't acknowledge them, then what kind of brotherhood do we have? Well, I mean, what kind of civilization are we building? Like that, that is, that is one of the, uh, one of the things that I think is sorely lacking in the world is that kind of like basic communication and manners because, well, I, I don't think people care about their honor <coughs> so much anymore. Like I, I, I think that that, I think that that has been somehow painted as a kind of, uh, like barbaric impulse to want to be, to, to want to preserve one's honor that you would, that you would, it, it's, it's almost been made like in an egotistical pursuit but if you read these charges like that's all they care about that's all this is this is, is an instruction manual on on gaining and maintaining honor i mean i would say that i think many modern people consider ideas like honor to be a byproduct of the gender binary it's sort of a masculine tendency to uh, maintain their dominance or a false creation of colonialism or some yeah. such structure but the fact of the matter is, is that the idea of honor is one of the oldest concepts in human history and so i think i think it's fundamental to being a human being and i think it's fundamental to being a freemason we have to maintain it we have to follow certain um, cultural norms we have to greet each other we have to respect each other when somebody asks for help you don't have the right to say no you have to help. And if you read more of the modern rituals now, they always say like, um, as long as it doesn't, you know, you, you need to aid a brother unless it infringes on your, on your, on your private avocations and all that. I think all that's been added in in order mm -hmm. to give people a way out. To soften. Now, yeah. somebody asks for help and he's a brother, I will help you. I will make an exception if you're committing a felony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not going to help you murder somebody, but... But that's not what we're talking about. And that's ridiculous. It, it always goes back to, well, what if somebody asks you to kill somebody? Well, well that's we've not what laid people are Well, we've already laid out that we're following the moral law yeah, here. So, like, the moral law. stop that. Yeah, like, but that's not what people ask you 99% of the time. They're, <laughs> they're asking you, like, yeah. can you help me move? Yeah. Like, you know, I lost my job. Can you help me? You know, I'm really sad about something. Can you listen to me? Mm -hmm. Those are the things that make up 99% of the requests of a brother. And I don't think we have the right to say no whatsoever to say no is to break your obligation yeah i mean I, th I think that that's what you enter into when you when you take on the idea that 
you know, if you are um, a child of God and your brethren are sons of God, um, then I think that you're basically saying that like you you have to treat. And I know this is you know cliche and everyone's read it in the Bible for two thousand years, but like you treat others as you would as you would expect yourself to be treated. That like you desire help when you're in need, and if you recognize that other people have the same divine stature as yourself then how could you ever pass by that opportunity? And, and that's what I think masonry teaches us is that that's an opportunity that you're passing by. That's, that's another opportunity to do your work. And, and you've said that you love that's that. That's the work. worship of masonry. Yes. Right? That's well. And, yeah. and really like that's, that's worship. That is the worship of God. Because if, if we're going to think of God on the kind of like sublime level that masonry exalts it to, then we have to think that way. You have to you have to see God in everybody else too, and you know we'll get into this next section here too, which is about the behavior in the presence of strangers, not Masons. So we just heard about how to behave with Masons. This is how to behave with not with non Masons. This one's important, and it says you shall be cautious in your words and carriage, that the most penetrating stranger shall not be able to discover or find out what is not proper to be intimated. And sometimes you shall divert a discourse and manage it prudently for the honor of the worshipful fraternity. That implies a lot. It's a, it's a short section, but it says a lot that we have to maintain the honor of the institution. And so I might have to divert a conversation. And, and what that means is I may not be able to give my true opinions. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm going to lie. You should never lie. But I also don't have to get the final word. I don't have to go around telling everybody everything that I think. So if, 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 if I'm talking to non-Masons about something political or whatnot, I should be careful not to sound like I'm radical, to sound like I'm uh, trying to separate and divide people. You know, I, I'm going to have my opinions, but sometimes I got to keep my opinions to myself because uh, I can't be looking like an ass to non-Masons. Well, I think it goes to this idea that there are certain qualifications to become a Mason. And some of like some of them are more mundane than others, but like most of it, I think, is is about like, are you capable of holding in your mind ideas and concepts that you may disagree with without reacting from an emotional basis? Are you able to consider things freely? Are you one of these religious free thinkers? Like, are you able to contemplate anything within the scope of, you know, of the truth of the divine law? Like, are you able to do that? And, and to become a Mason, you demonstrate in one way or another that you are able to do that. So when I'm talking to brothers, I know that I don't have to qualify everything that I'm saying. I don't have to back away from my true opinions and say, I, I understand how this might sound crazy, but here's what I think. I can dispense with that. You do that a lot. <laughs> I, do, I do do that a lot. <laughs> but but with Masons, I can dispense with the kind of, with the with the introductory, you know. With the pleasantries. With the pleasantries. I don't have to do that. But, yeah. but it is important to remember that no matter how comfortable we may be with our brethren, you can't do that with everybody. You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know what they believe all the time. And in in Masonry, we have been tried and proved. We know who we're talking to. And and in a sense, in a very general sense, what we believe. And and I'm able to have very liberated conversations with people that I already... It's like talking to family, 
right? It's the same concept. Yeah. These are my brothers. I, I know them in, in a sense. It's the best analogy. You're talking to your family. You're talking to your family. And, and with strangers, it's important, again, to guard the honor of the fraternity that I don't come off as a raving lunatic. And that might mean couching some of my more radical opinions. Well, and I think this, it doesn't say it directly, but I think it implies it, which is with the profanes, I'm trying to, and this goes also back to the idea of being the religion in the country, the predominant religion of the country that you live in, which is I'm supposed to be preaching truth in the language of the people around me. So when I'm around profanes, around people that are not Masons, I need to adjust my words and my phrases to be productive. To try to direct people towards towards Masonic truth and towards Masonic light. And to do that, I have to guard against certain opinions and certain views in order that I can I can do that. And 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 one point you know, to one point beyond that, it's like, let's say I'm with a with a couple of profanes and they're fighting about a political idea. You know, there's a Trump supporter and a Biden supporter and they're fighting. what's my duty? To pick a side? No, the honor of the institution is to show that I am impartial and that I can help, you know, heal these wounds and help these two people become friends again, mm-hmm. right? And so my words and language should be directed towards healing, towards bringing people together, unifying, and trying to, you know, um, defuse a bad situation. Well, and, and two, I think by exhorting us to caution, the, the charge here is reminding us that, that a Mason is never truly at refreshment. That there is, like, there is... You're always doing this work. Your, your obligations don't have hours to them, right? Like you are, you are perpetually charged to behave this way. There is no time where you can, you know, take off from this. Like it, it is a, it is a permanent lifestyle. It's not a, it's not a vocation that you travel to for, you know, eight to nine hours a day. And then that's it. Like this is something that you, it's a way that you live your life. Brother X, why don't you read number five, which is behavior at home and in your neighborhood. It says, you are to act as becomes a moral and wise man, particularly not to let your family, friends, and neighbors know the concern of the lodge, but wisely to consult your own honor and that of the ancient brotherhood for reasons not to be mentioned here. You must also consult your health by not continuing together too late or too long from home after lodge hours are past, and by avoiding of gluttony and drunkenness that your families be not neglected or injured, nor you disabled from working. So Freemasonry is not a frat party. No, nor a drinking club, nor a social club, nor really. I mean, it's saying here, like, it, it's not anything that should detract from the institution of family life, essentially. It's not the Shriners. Yeah. Or anything like the Shriners. This isn't a place for boys to get together and have fun, right? Uh, but that's mostly what Freemasonry has become today. Like, it's, you know, no offense to our male craft brethren, but... That's the perception that people have. This is a, it's a place uh, to come drink with your bros and have a good time. And many have told me that that's exactly what it is. Well, I think, too, there's an interesting line in there about like not bringing home the concerns of the lodge to your family or to your neighbors. The, the idea that the honor of the fraternity is preserved through its secrecy. And, and the, like people often criticize masonry because of its secret nature. But this is, this is the reason for it. It's like if... if the business of a Masonic lodge is just spread throughout a neighborhood or within a family or whatever. It like it opens itself up to detraction when if its members could just refrain from gluttony and drunkenness and from opening their mouths when they don't need to, then the honor of the fraternity is preserved. So I have a question here with gluttony. 
what are we referring to? Is it just just in the presence of our home and neighbors, you know, as Masons, we we shouldn't indulge too much in food and drink? You know, drink drink makes sense, right? But what about food? So is is there some sort of directive here about maintaining, you know, being in good shape, you know, not not being overweight? Well, I think so, and I think the answer is at the end of the paragraph there, where it says, "So that you are not disabled from from working." Like you remember, like the idea of this was that you should be in a proper and fit condition to conduct the work of Freemasonry, and that does not mean being, you know, an obese glutton who's drunk all the time. Like that's, um, I think even in here it says that like you are supposed to maintain yourself. Uh, yeah, you must also consult your health. And then it says, like, by not carrying on too late and being a glutton, but, like, you must consult your health in the sense of, like, you're, you're here to serve a higher purpose, not to, you know, just satisfy your physical desires. I think this is a hard one for some people, you know, um, because masonry traditionally has never accepted disabled people, for example. So, you know, if you can't make the signs, if you can't kneel... Um, if you can't move around the lodge, if you can't be seated for a long time, you're not allowed to engage in the work. And I think this is left over from, from operative masonry where, like you just said, like if you can't work, well, then you couldn't be an operative mason. But do you think that's right, Brother Axel? Because now that we're speculative masons, should it even matter someone's body? Like, so, okay, you're in a wheelchair. Can't you come in the lodge and still participate in the speculative work? So this is a delicate question for a lot of people, but I'm going to say no. And uh, the reason for that is that, well, for one, Masonic ritual requires specific physical movements. If those cannot be performed, then the ritual can't be done. And that's, you know, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean like we hate disabled people. It's just there are specific things that must be done in order for the ceremonial magic of the Masonic ritual to work. And if those things can't be done, then you cannot participate in the ritual. And it's, it's a hard truth, but it's a truth nonetheless. Okay, so then moving from that point, because I agree with you, what should be the, the limits? What's the line? You know? So um, what if I, I'm 80 years old and have a walking cane? Should I be able to join? I think if you can, if you can, I mean, to me, that was a question that's up to the discretion of the master of the lodge. But if, like, if, um, if a best effort can be made, if something can be done, um, by, by that person, for example, like if we're, for example, we had some, um, some members of the Supreme Council here at Larkspur that by, by the end of their life, you know, they had to be escorted into the lodge, for example, they, they couldn't participate fully, but they had given their entire lives in the service of masonry. Yeah. But I think we can argue that if you're already a mason, it's a different story. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about just to be initiated. If, if the movements can be performed and the ritual can be completed, then you can join. And should the master ever make any exceptions or bend a few rules in order to, to make it possible for people that are you know right on the line? Well, Brother Matthias, I personally have never served as the master of a lodge. I'm not really in a position to make that kind of, uh, make that kind of a statement, but you have had that privilege. So why don't you tell me what you think? That's a great way of not answering the question, isn't it? Um, I, yeah, I, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. I think a master of a lodge, depending on who's you know, petitioning, you know, is this somebody well-known to the brethren? Is this a stranger? You know, what's, what's, what's the nature uh, of the disability? I, I think a lot of things factor in, but it's a case-by-case -case basis in which 
it, that needs to be determined because I don't, I don't think there's any hard or fast rules in masonry that doesn't allow the master to make a determination on this based on, you know, personal observation and questioning and, and um, of course, being affirmed by the brethren by vote, you know, on the petition. So, yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of people think masonry is very rigid and I suppose it can be in some ways, but I think the way it works is that you have all these rules, but there's flexibility for the master. There's flexibility from lodge to lodge as well, because lodges are, have different temperaments. So um, I think that's a good way to do it. But I think if masonry didn't have that spirit, it probably wouldn't have lasted this long. If we only had, you know, Anderson's constitutions and that was the only book that we were able to follow for 300 years, it probably wouldn't have lasted. Like if there's, if there was no flexibility in any of this, no, no evolution, no master's interpretation, no evolution yeah. to any of this, then it probably still wouldn't be around. But I think, you know, kind of to put a conclusion to this section, I think these are powerful rules here. Like, yeah, we're supposed to maintain, you know, not only be, you know, a sober state, but like we're supposed to be of sound body. You know, we're supposed to take care of ourselves. You know, again, it doesn't really define exactly what your weight should be or, you know, whether you go to gym every day and those type of things, but we're supposed to be fit. And I think that's an important part of ritual. I think that's an important part of being an example. Now, I know today, you know, this gets a little, you know, more iffy because people say, you know, we shouldn't attack people's, uh, you know, the way they look and all that, you know, I forget, what's that called now? Um, ableism. Ableism and all that. Yeah. And I think there, to some degree that's true. Like, you know, we, we shouldn't be critiquing people all the time. But on the other hand, like, as an institution that you have to petition to join, I think there's no problem with having some rules saying, like, yeah, these people have to be you know, be able to carry on the work and, and they should be examples of people that are well balanced, right? That was the point I was going to make. I mean, it's like, yeah, we're not attacking people's physical appearance. We're just set, we're setting rules for, a, for an organization that one voluntarily joins. Mm -hmm. You know, masonry is under no obligation to divulge its secrets to everybody. That's not, that's not what this whole thing has been set up to do. And I, and I think that we're kind of, we're living in a, in an era when, when, the idea of having a secret organization or an organization that has secrets, however you want to think about it, is kind of like people people balk at that because they're like, well, what what do you mean I'm not good enough? It's like nobody said you weren't good enough. Like we just have our own organization with its secrets, and and but people hear that and they're like, what do you what do you mean I can't hear them? Why am I not good enough? Well, I mean that's just the nature of any institution. It has the right to pick its members, right? Just like we pick our own friends, just like we pick you know. Um, who to make our families with. Like, these are all choices. You know, we, we shouldn't be forced to bond with people that don't necessarily jive with what we believe in mm -hmm. and what we're working towards. And this kind of draws back to the criteria that's, you know, all these points that we've been discussing kind of draw back to this idea of you know, what's the criteria for someone joining, right? It's, it, there's five points, you know, being free of mature age, sound judgment, and, and strict morals. And I think I'm skipping the fifth one here. I know there's a fifth one, right? What is uh, I don't actually. You know, it's it's free, upright, s mature, sound judgment, strict morals. So it is five. Um, it seems. I mean, they're kind of vague, but you know, what are these? And I think we should kind of extrapolate these real quick here because, you know, being free, I think it implies that you couldn't be a slave or mm -hmm. an indentured servant, those type of things. But really, on an esoteric level. Being free means, you know, having a mind free enough to to encounter new ideas that you're not so conditioned and so brainwashed by your religion and society and family, etc., that you can 
you can kind of look at new ideas that you're open to learning something new. So I think it, you know, for, for the 21st century, for co-Masons in an esoteric light, free means free, you know, to be a free thinker. Well, I think also to, to the point we were just making with the previous section, I think it also means to be free from like the slavery of one's passions. You know, if we, if we, like, we don't have slavery in the, in the Western world anymore, that as a institution that has long been defunct, but like, but people are enslaved to addictions all the time, whether it be to drugs or food or sex or whatever. If like, if you're a thrall to your passions, if you're enslaved by your emotions, then you're not free in the sense that is required by Freemasonry. We need people that are not only free thinkers, but that live free of those, of those passions. Upright. What does this mean? I mean, I think generally, again, I don't know, it's easy to describe on paper by definition, but upright means that you live a life that's worthy of remembrance, right? You're living a life where you're an example of a good citizen, a good father or mother, a, a good brother, uh, a good sister, a, a good whatever. Like you're just, you know, you're doing the right thing. You're following the law. Um, you're, you're setting a good example for the people around you. So um, all the points that we've read reinforce this idea like a Mason needs to be upright. And, and this isn't just a criteria to join the fraternity. You have to maintain these five mm -hmm. uh, during your career as a Mason. Yeah, I think I think you hit on it. It's, it's about being exemplary. Like, is, is your life something that the craft could put out to the world and say, this is an example of what a Mason is? Would, um, would the craft be honored to have you as a member, to have you as a representative of the fraternity? Like, can you go out and be an upright pillar? I mean, we're, we're talking about Freemasonry here. We're, <laughs> we're concerned with the symbolism of pillars, right? And of raising pillars. Like, well, a pillar is upright. It's plumb. It's level. It's square. Like, that's the, I, I think that's the idea behind um, the requirement to be upright is that you could be, you're, you're a part of the structure that can be relied upon. The next of the five is mature, mature age. And this is traditionally interpreted as being, oh, you're 21. In most jurisdictions, you have to be 21. Some jurisdictions, you have to be 18 to join. Mm -hmm. uh, it depends if you're a Lewis, so, you know, your mother or father um, is a Mason, then it's, it's usually 18 and not 21, so you get that advantage if, you're, if one of your parents was a Mason. Uh, well, at least in co-Masonry. Um, but really, that's such a simple explanation. What's the most esoteric explanation? You know, maturity, you can be 50 years old and be the most immature human being. Yeah. So trying to like go out and party and have a good time. And, and so maturity means that you, you've, you've come to a certain level of development in your personality um, that you're working towards the lofty goals of mastery, right? You're, you're working to improve society. You're working to improve yourself. You're of service to your brethren. Um, you don't make up little lies. You know, you, you, you do the things that you're asked of and don't make excuses. I mean, these are all signs of maturity. I mean, what do children do? They lie. They make excuses. They don't show up. They're not very good with their responsibilities. So obviously you have to be mature to be a Mason. Otherwise you won't really do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, there's no room in the Masonic work for children. Like this isn't something that could do when we're talking about, you know, building the temple, not made with hands. Like that's not something that a bunch of children can accomplish. We're talking about advancing the evolution of humanity across generations, you know, and, and I, I think that that requires a, a certain, like, this is a serious thing that we're doing. If you wanted to show up and drink and have a good time, like there are plenty of other 
perfectly good organizations for that. But if you really want to do the esoteric work of Freemasonry, then that requires a level of maturity. I mean, especially in co-masonry, I mean, like the, the commitment of masonry is something that a child cannot handle or, or somebody without a mature outlook on life. It's like it's, it requires a massive change well, to your life. Brother Axel, that's a lot of like, most adults. I mean, it's very easy for me to see who's mature once they've joined because if they don't acknowledge signs and summonses, if uh, they never, you know, they're always late on their dues, um, they're late to meetings, or you know, all, all these things, it's like, well, this person's immature. Maybe, maybe we made a bad choice because they can't do these simple little things. Mm-hmm. But that's what we do as adults. We have to do lots of simple little things all the time. We have to pay our bills on time. Uh, you know, we have to take care of our children. We have to cook meals. You know, we have to go to bed at a reasonable time. Uh, we have to get up. You know, we have to clean our homes. Like, these are all things that maybe a lot of people don't want to do. But that's just part of being an adult. Mm-hmm. So being an adult in masonry, being mature, means that you're going to do all the things that are asked of you. Right? And that just seems very difficult. Especially in this modern time that we live in, it seems like people think a lot of stuff's trivial. And why do we need to do it? We can automate everything. There is a quality to doing this work independent whether it takes up too much time or not. Like you doing it repeatedly over time starts to chisel a better person out. And it, and it leaves a record of sound judgment too, to move on to the fourth point. Like when, when you live your life that way and you, and you apply to be a member of, of Freemasonry or of a Masonic Lodge, you like if you ha- if you have lived as a as a free upright person of mature age then that kind of leads into sound judgment you will have a record of sound judgment and and you can tell like the these last three are all kind of linked um sound judgment maturity and strict morals kind of they form like a trinity like you're not really going to have one without the other two they support each other you can't you can't have sound judgment without strict morals and without a sense of maturity. You can't really be considered mature without sound judgment and strict morals. Does that make sense? I, I agree 100%. And, and another facet of, of sound judgment is, I think, being a person that is balanced and polite. Mm-hmm. So someone like that's, that has sound judgment knows um, when to talk, when to shut up, right? Um, they know how to make people feel welcome. You know, it's all these little like social nuances that uh, I think people have lost again because of social media and being too much on their electronics and um, not integrating with society as much as they used to. But, you know, sound judgment isn't like, you know, you always make the right decision. It's just like you, you are, you're conscious of your surroundings. You know, you're not so introverted that you're just not aware of other people. So a point to that, and I think this is a this is a particular problem in masonry, is that like I think a lot of a lot of the people that have problems at the beginning of their Masonic career um, is because that they view this endeavor as an individualistic program, that this is something that they're doing for themselves, that they want to know the secrets of the universe, that they want to become a better person, you know, for whatever reasons, but it's but it's really all about them. It's inwardly focused, it's introverted. So you like so for example, like you might get somebody that like doesn't really have a concept of like the fact that we're building a social organization, that what we're doing is something that stretches across time, that it's about involving other people, that we're not built like we're not building with physical materials. We're building with human beings. 
if you're not polite, if you don't have manners, if you don't make people feel welcome, if you don't go beyond to to bring people into this and make them feel like they're having an exemplary experience, then you're not really like you're not really focusing on what the real work of masonry is. If you're just like, well, I want to learn all these techniques to be better. Well, you're not going to, you're not going to teach me the secrets (laughs) of masonry. (laughs) Give me the keys to the universe. All I I need is to, you know, I need you to give me a reading list of all the right books and then I'll be a great person. Like, no, I mean, the lesson of masonry is like help and serve others and the purpose of masonry. And you'll just be a better person later. Don't worry about being a better person. Worry about serving because service is what makes you a better person. And I think that perfectly leads into the fifth point um, of the five point criteria of becoming a Mason, which is strict morals. Um, I think a lot of people get confused with this one because they think like, oh, we have to be, it's Christian morality or Judeo-Christian morality and we have to be strict that way. I don't think that's what it's saying. What it's saying is that you have to have strict morals. And what that means is that whatever you believe, you need to be strict about it. So you could literally have two people that are Masons that have different moral systems but as long as they're strictly following their own moral code, they're good masons. So it's not about making everybody think the same or act the same or you know to to view thing you know to view the same evils and the same goods as the, as, as as sort of uniformly in masonry. It's you need to be strict because I think what degrades masonry in the ritual work are people that don't have a moral system. They kind everything is okay, everything is good. Uh, you know, to each their own. Um, it's a useful phrase to each their own, but at the same time, you are your own person and you need to know what you believe in and you need to follow through. So if you say lying is bad and then you're lying, well, you're just a hypocrite, which mm-hmm. means you're not, you it's not straight morals. You, morals. you know, whether, whether you believe abortion is a good thing or bad thing, that masonry is not going to judge that. It, mm-hmm. But whatever you do believe, stick hold, to hold it. Hold it with conviction. Yeah, yeah. you know... It, Believe in what you're saying. Believe mm. in, in what you're espousing to other people. You know, that's your, your point there at the beginning of like, oh, well, it's not Judeo-Christian morality or anything like that. It makes me think of something that, um, you know, when, when I talk to people that apply um, to the order, you know, I, at one, of the, one of the red flags is people that have a, a big disdain for religion, wh- whatever religion it is. I mean, for us, it's usually people that have a disdain for Judeo-Christian morality because, you know, they were raised in some church that they had a bad experience in, that, you know, they hate religion, they think it's mind control or whatever. Um, I, I tend to find that that is, a, that is a precursor for not having strict morals because if you disdain systems of morality, whether or not you have, you know, you may have your reasons or whatever, but it tends to lead to an, an attitude where like, well, you know, I, this moral system is bad. Therefore moral systems are bad. And, and, and that it, it tends not to create in a person a sense of necessity for, for a strong moral compass or one that they would adhere to. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really, there are 7 billion moral systems on the planet. Well, are we up to 8 billion? Now? I forgot, but whatever for, you know, for each individual that exists, everyone has to have their own moral system. They're all loosely based on an existing system, but mm-hmm. you know, even some of this, you know, perf- you know, um, deeply Roman Catholic, they're still going to have their own little nuances. You know, not every single Roman Catholic agrees with one another on everything, yeah. right? But you need to follow it. I remember uh, my aunt; um, she's Roman Catholic, and she—I mean, she's Opus Dei. I mean, she's just fanatic. But I really respect her. I disagree with just about everything that she has to say. But she has a conviction. She goes to church every day. She follows it. And I think by doing so, 
shows that she's a real quality individual. Even though, again, I don't agree with it. But that that's I don't find value in people that agree with me. I find value in people that are honorable and do what they say they're gonna do. To me, those those are those are diamonds in the rough. There's not a lot of people that are just really have a strong conviction. Yeah, I think the idea of like following through on something no matter what, like even if I might personally disagree with it, like it's necessary to see that in a person. You know, all you know, all the better if I happen to agree with you know your moral convictions. That's great, but that really like that's really not the point. The point is is like, do you have a system of honor that is important to you and so important that you actually follow it? And I would argue that most people that have strict morals, they're probably there's probably more in common with what they believe is right than yeah. wrong. Yeah. But again, it's never going to be 100. percent But that's not the goal of masonry. No. Is to make robots. The goal of masonry is to have people that are doing what they say should be done in life, right? Yeah, to have strong absolutely. convictions, have purpose, have meaning, and go and do it. It's not just talk, 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 and then we all sit around in an intellectual circle and tell, you know, we, we basically just boost ourselves up by saying how wonderful we are and all the great things we've learned. I mean, intellectuality, it can be a dead end without works, yeah. right? Yeah, well, anything without works is a dead end, right? Well, I mean, don't tell that to a Protestant. <laughs> you might be burned at the stake, uh, brother. That's a, different, that's a different podcast. All right, so we've exhausted point number five, behavior <laughs> at home and in your neighborhood. So, brother Axel, why don't you read number six, behavior towards a strange brother. It says, you are cautiously to examine him in such a method as prudence shall direct you, that you may not be imposed upon by an ignorant false pretender, whom you are to reject with contempt and derision. And beware of giving any hints of knowledge. But if you discover him to be a true and genuine brother, you are to respect him accordingly. And if he is in want, you must relieve him if you can, or else direct him how he may be relieved. You must employ him some days, or else recommend him to be employed. But you are not charged to do beyond your ability, only to prefer a poor brother that is a good man and true before any other poor people in the same circumstances. So... This is a hard one. Um, so if there's two poor people, you know, and one's a mason, one's not, I'm supposed to help the mason first. What do you think, Brother Axel? I mean, is that, is that the right way to look at it? Like, should we... That, that, that's, that's kind of... Um, that preferential treatment seems very biased us, right? So we only help our own. I mean, is that one of the accusations of Masons? Uh, I'm sure it's 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 an accusation of any closed community. But I, I find it interesting that it's leveled at us and, and not say, uh, for example, uh, communities of Jews that prefer to hire Jews over non-Jews. And it, and it says it doesn't mean to prefer him over everything or to you know elevate him to whatever position you can. Just if there are two poor people. Choose the one that you have a connection with, that you have taken a vow and an obligation to support whenever you meet one. It's not, it's not saying hate all poor people or stop giving to the poor. It's saying if you have a choice, you have made an obligation to help this person. I don't, it's, it's interesting. Like there, there are, many I think, many social contradictions here that for some communities it's okay for them to help their own. For other communities it's not. Well, I don't want to get way off course here, but I think this is a, an important point to bring up, but, you know, Regular, you know, Malecraft Masons and, and uh, co-Masons, I've heard this from both, you know, that, um, well, what makes a Mason isn't the ceremony. It's something in your, it's, 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 it's just, you know, something that you understand within. So there are plenty of Masons out there 
that have never been, <laughs> have, have never been through initiation before, yeah. right? Yeah. You've heard this, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, and again, I've heard co-masons and, and, and regular Melcraft masons say the same thing. And I'm like, well, then what, what's, what makes a mason? Well, in our order, it's the regularity of his initiation. Like, I, I think it's, I, I've heard that saying a lot and it's always irks me. Because it because you're right. Like, well, then what's the point of masonry? Why do we do the ritual? Why must you be initiated? Why must you meet certain criteria? Well, well, because that's not true. It's it's be, like your masons are masons because they've been initiated into masonry. There are people that hold the same values as masons that may live like masons, but they're not masons. Being a mason doesn't mean that you're better than other people. But you need to be initiated in order to be a mason. It right? does mean you've been initiated. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you know, you'd be like that person's kind of like they 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 they'd be perfect for mason. Yeah. Right. They make a great mason. You know, yeah. uh, they act like a mason. Mm-hmm. You know, but they're not a mason. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we start to kind of blur these lines of you know, it's all just some sort of mental construct, some sort of social construct that things are no longer real, right? Yeah. So it's like, well, then why, why does masonry even exist? And back to the previous point we were talking about, some people are like, well, why do you have criteria? Well, so should we just let everybody get initiated? Then why even have interview committees? Why why even have petitions? Just people, why, why even have initiations? Just, Everybody, why, why have doors? Why have just doors? Just walk right yeah. in. It, it should be like a Protestant church, yeah. right? Well, and, and to your point earlier about like, why, why should we prefer masons above, you know, other you know, regular people. Why do you prefer your family over strangers? Why would you, why would you do walk, walk to the ends of the earth for your children or for your mother and father, or for your brothers and sisters? Why would you do that over, you know, if you're, I would hope, I would hope that your, if your flesh and blood, blood brother was starving on the street and there was another person starving on the street, I would hope you'd help your brother. I think I've brought this up to you before, Brother Axel, but uh, the philosopher of objectivism, um, Ayn Rand, in her book, <laughs> The Virtue of Selfishness, brings up a very interesting point. She, she doesn't believe sacrifice can exist, and I disagree with her, but she still made an interesting like uh, scenario demonstrating why she believed what she did, which is um, if I have children and I give up food to feed them so they survive, that is not a sacrifice because... I value them more than myself. But if I give the food that I'm supposed to put in my mouth to my neighbor's kids and allow my kids to die, that would really be a sacrifice. But when has that ever happened? When have I allowed my children to die so my neighbor's children can live? And it it is an interesting scenario because it's like, yeah, no, they're my children. I will take care of them. And in some ways, I think there's a there is a natural imperative that makes us do that. Like we take care of our own first. And I, and I think there's a practical reason for this because that's what we have access to. That's, you know, I, I, you know, when we talk about like starving people in Africa, when I think about it, it's a terrible thing. But I also don't lose sleep at night because I don't know these people. So if I really knew them, I would probably be tormented every night about how people are starving that I know, but I don't know them. So I think about it and intellectually it's a terrible thing, but I'm not depressed about it. And no, nobody is that I know. Yeah. I mean, they might say they are, but they're not because they're still going and getting their Starbucks. And yeah, they're get, not doing anything. No, they're it, going yeah. to Noodles can Company and you know, they're, they're spending all this money. They're buying books. They're going to the movies. They're on social media. Well, people are actually starving in the sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. right? But the fact is 
we have naturally been, you know, pulled into taking care of those that are closest to us. So when we become a Mason, it's like we've extended our blood family just like a little further to our lodge now. Yeah, and it, it's actually, it's an extension of the idea of charity beyond what most people go through their entire lives thinking about. Like, most people, if you would ask them, like, would probably be generous to most members of their family. You know, you might have a, a crazy uncle or something that you're not too inclined to help out in a pinch. But for most people, it it really ends with their family, unless you're particularly charitable or, ironically enough, unless you're religious, in which case you're you're probably plenty charitable. But for the non-religious, you know, secular, modernist, ideal human being, they're probably not in a church giving a charity. Maybe they kind of vaguely give to some cause that they like but don't really follow the, up on. You know, the, the Red may, Cross. And, yeah, and maybe they'll, they'll help their family out in a pinch if they really need to. But in masonry, you actually have an extended family that you feel connected mm-hmm. to just as you would with your, with your yeah. flesh and blood. I think that's actually one of the purposes of, of extending your, your social circle a little further. So these are people that I will treat like my, my own blood. Well, right? and it goes beyond like it, it, if a brother was in distress, like say a brother fell on hard times or something, it would go be for me, it would go beyond giving them money. It'd be like, hey, what's happening here? What, yeah. what, what circumstances need to be helped that can, that can restore you to a state of self-sufficiency? I think that's one of the biggest problems with charity today, that it's it's all just about giving money. I'm like, dude, money isn't going to solve the problems of the world. It will solve the problems for this day mm-hmm. and for tomorrow, because you do need to put food on people's plates, you need to give them water, etc., medicine. But money does not make us better people. Like, we need to be one-on-one. We need to care about um, our brother's problems, our family's problems, right? And it's, 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 Tell me this, brother. You, you have friends, right? <laughs> Presumably. <yeah>. Presumably. <laughs> you, got, you got friends. You got people. How many times have you been through a, a big problem in your life and you're amazed how little people actually care about your problem? That's uh, <laughs> quite often. Quite yeah, often. Yeah. I think, you know, to all our listeners out there, you know, I think we probably all experienced this. You know, something like the cataclysmic happens to us, right? Mm-hmm. And we think it's the end of the world for ourselves. But, you know, our friends... They might listen to our story and then they change the subject to yeah. something else. It's actually a very good way of knowing who actually cares about you when people are actually listening and asking questions. But a lot of people, they'd rather be talking about themselves than to be talking about your problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you, you, you notice it. And it's, uh, it's kind of, it's one of the craziest realizations for me in my life generally has been how, how much people don't care about the things that are going on around them. And I think as Masons, our job is to actually care about the problems that our, our brothers are facing. Lend them an ear. This is, you know, I think we've overemphasized therapy in the 21st century and the late 20th century. Like, we're supposed to have friends. We're supposed to have people we can lean on to talk to and listen to. But now we, we pay people to listen to our problems. Like, what happened to friendship? You know, when, I, when I'm, you know, a girl broke up with me or, you know, I lost a job or whatever, like, I go to the people I care about, so they'll listen to me, they'll come for me, and then after that, you know, I feel better. And maybe they give me some good advice. So we've kind of gone through the behavior, which is kind of important. Like we've left out in, in Anderson's constitution, the in, in his charges, we've left out like the particular relationship of you know a ma- an apprentice to their master and all those things, focusing more on the on the moral behavior because that's what's really interesting. 
Um, but here's the final section, and I think you should re read Brother Axel, and then we can kind of talk about it. So it says in conclusion, Finally, all these charges you are to observe, and also those that shall be recommended to you in another way, cultivating brotherly love, the foundation and capstone, the cement and glory of this ancient fraternity, avoiding all wrangling and quarreling, all slander and backbiting, not permitting others to slander any honest brother, but defending his character and doing him all good offices, as far as is consistent with your honor and safety, and no farther. If any of them do you injury, you must apply to your own or his lodge, and from thence you may appeal to the Grand Lodge at the quarterly communication, and from thence to the annual Grand Lodge, as has been the ancient laudable conduct of our forefathers in every nation, never taking a legal course, but when the case cannot be otherwise decided, and patiently listening to the honest and friendly advice of master and fellows, when they would prevent your going to law with strangers, or would excite you to put a speedy period to all lawsuits, so that you may mind the affair of masonry with the more alacrity and success. But with respect to brothers or fellows at law, the master and brethren should kindly offer their mediation, which ought to be thankfully submitted by the contending brethren, and if that submission is impractical, they must, however, carry on their process or lawsuit without wrath and rancor, not in the common way, saying or doing nothing which may hinder brotherly love and good offices to be renewed and continued, that all may see the benign influence of masonry, as all true masons have done from the beginning of the world and will do to the end of time. Amen. So mote it be. Yeah, this final section is, well, it's not as inspirational as I would have wanted it to have been, <laughs> but... But it makes a good point here that you're supposed to try to solve your problems before you make it a legal issue. Because if you can't solve it in masonry within the structure that has been provided and you have to resort to the legal apparatus in the state, um, how, how much a brother are you really, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I do find it interesting that, it, that it, it focuses specifically on quarreling and backbiting and haranguing one another and that, like that this would be the conclusion of these charges in the sense that like it reveals to us that what masonry was trying to do in the same vein as as the religions of the world has been to maintain unity and harmony amongst people and that that for centuries it has attempted to do this to bring people together in a common work and to make sure that you know problems are going to arise personalities will clash people will have fights with one another but to see that those are resolved quickly and as peaceably as possible so that any institution that can accomplish that work may go on to be an example to the rest of the world. I mean, ultimately, what is the point of civilization in society? It's to progress. And what is the number one enemy of progress? It's ourselves. Whether it be like individuals or as a collective, like we're the ones setting ourselves back technologically, spiritually, emotionally, like I, we should be thousands of years in the future, but, but we've been pulled back because of war and strife and conflict. I mean, an organization like Freemasonry, what's, what's the biggest problem? Gossip. People talking crap about one another. Like that's the biggest problem, right? And making people look bad, um, and that leads to picks and quarrels and all these type of things that were described in, in the charges here. But it's conflict. What destroys the lodges? Is it forces from the outside? You know, is it the state coming in with their police forces? No, it's the brothers. 
you know, think of how many lodges should be so much bigger and more powerful, but they've decreased in size because it's been filled with gossip and hypocrites and, and on all the conflicts that we see that unfold within the lodges. Something that you said to me years ago at this point, but that has stuck with me for that long and, and that, you know, I often think about is like how much time has been wasted not again like you said not because of adverse events not because of crises from outside not because of you know the actions of our enemies but just us getting in our own way Mm -hmm. playing our own games you know starting quarrels that were unnecessary that just do nothing but impede us for no reason other than to have them you know and i and i think that any any moral system any moral philosophy worth its weight would have to be in some way dedicated to eradicating this impulse that we have as human beings to fight with one another, to, to engender conflict and, and to, you know, cast ourselves against other people. Like, and that's why I, th- I think that in masonry, we enshrine the, the symbolism of the building craft and the idea of these great works that stretch across generations, because really like, that's the only thing that can keep that at bay is a, is a, is a shared holy vision of a building not necessarily made of hands, but one that can persist eternally across generations. Ideology is what has been used to make this stability in society. So people come up with different political systems, different philosophies, and their hope is to propagate that system to enough people that everybody sort of agrees, right? So religion, you know, the idea of the Roman Catholic Church is, well, if everybody's Roman Catholic, there'll be peace and harmony on earth. There'll be utopia in a Mm -hmm. sense. God's kingdom will come down to the earth. And I think most of the institutions are that way. Their, their, their goal is to spread so far that everybody thinks the same way. But masonry has taken an alternative route, and I think it's the only real route, which is we'll never all agree. Ideology is evil and destructive and will only lead to war and strife and division. So masonry's approach is, well, how do we bring people together? Well, we need to teach them to be tolerant of one another's differences. It's about diversity and the strength that's found in diversity. And that's why Malecraft Masonry, in my opinion, is a failure because inherently it excludes all the women of the world. That's, that's half the population. They then exclude racially, depending on jurisdiction or, or based on whether they're people or their sexual preference of being homosexuals or whatnot. And so then you reduce the population to this, you know, 20, 30% of the population, and yet they're supposed to spread this, this message of liberty, equality, and fraternity. But masonry has set up the real path, which is we need to bring everyone together, no matter all their differences, and get them to sit in a room, do the same ritual, talk about an idea without getting angry. Because if they can do that, then we can literally live in a world with all these differences, but actually have peace, stability, and harmony. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari, and does not represent the official views of Universal Comasonry. Universal Comasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit 
universalfreemasonry.org.